Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. As all of you are fully aware, our nation is in the midst of several crises. And yes, that is the proper way to say that word. I had to look it up. Crises is the plural of crisis. And we are in the midst of several. We are in the midst of a health crisis. This pandemic now going on for nearly nine months. And no, it did not mysteriously disappear once the election was over with. We are in the midst of a political crisis, and the finalizing of the election will not change that. Neither was the crisis going to be averted based on who won. Rather, politically, I am simply acknowledging that we are a seriously divided nation. We are in the, in, in the midst of a social crisis, with unrest and violence taking place on seemingly a nightly basis in major cities all over our country. And we can add to these national events things that are going on in your own life, personal crises, perhaps your own health crisis or that of a close family member. Or maybe you're in the midst of a relational crisis or a career crisis or a financial crisis or all of the above. It's just been a bad year all around, and therefore there is no shortage of crises to point to. And in the midst of these, as believers, we often ask and wonder, where is God? Why doesn't he hear my prayers, or at least we assume he's not, because he's not answering nor solving our problems? Why doesn't he intervene in our nation and fix things? Well, one way to answer these questions is to go back and look at how God has indeed dealt with crises that we see in the Word of God. And so in the midst of our own crisis, I thought we would do a brief series on some of the major crises of the Bible, both from the Old Testament and the New. And there are certainly plenty to choose from, And you will probably wonder as we move forward why I chose the ones I did and left others out. I have largely tried to pick physical crises rather than spiritual ones, though the last one we will look at will be a crisis of the gospel. Our goal in this series will be twofold. One, to be reminded of the fact that we are not the first people, even the first believers, to experience times of crisis in our lives. Misery loves company, the old saying goes. So perhaps being reminded that others have gone through similar or perhaps much worse circumstances will teach us to count our blessings. The second goal that we will have in mind in each instance will be to recognize that God does hear the cries of his people, God does answer those cries, and God does deliver. Maybe not always as quickly as we would like, but he delivers nevertheless. 
So seeing how God has delivered in history at various times of crisis will help us put our trust in him in the midst of our own crisis. So I'm calling this series a crisis of biblical proportions. But the sermon today is a crisis of slavery. It is from Exodus chapter 1. So yes, I have skipped the fall of man. I have skipped the flood. I told you you would probably wonder why I've chosen the ones I have. But in those cases, I'm going to deal with those in another upcoming series. Now before I read the text, narrative, pro, pro, narrative portions of Scripture are notoriously hard to outline. And I know many of you like outlines. We think li linearly. And so we need that outline to keep us focused. So I'll try to do that. But narrative portions of Scripture are very difficult to do that in. But before we get to the crisis and before we get to the text, I want you to see a prelude to the crisis. So I'm going to be reading the text a little later than I normally do because I want you to know the background that brings us to this particular crisis. So you'll recall in the closing pages of the book of Genesis, there we find the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he is a favored son. He gets preferential treatment from his father, and he has these lofty dreams that he's naive enough to tell his brothers. And therefore, they don't like him very much. And they decide they're going to take advantage of that, and they sell him into slavery, telling his father that he has been devoured by wild animals. But instead, he is taken down to Egypt, where he becomes a slave to Potiphar. And through a series of circumstances, crises in his own life, he eventually comes to the place where he is a powerful man in Egypt. God had revealed to him that there was going to be a famine. He told Pharaoh. Pharaoh put him in charge of preparing for that. And so Joseph, over a period of years, set aside a bunch of grain. Then when the famine arrived, people began to come to Egypt and buy grain. And those people included his brothers. So his brothers came down to buy grain, and they did that twice. And on the second occasion, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and tells them to go back home and get the rest of their family and bring them all down, including dad, to live in Egypt where he will provide for them. And so Genesis closes with the 70 people in Joseph's family making the journey to Egypt and living there. And then some 70 years later, now they're living in Egypt as the guest of Pharaoh. And they are given some of the choicest land. And so they come down on good terms, and they live in the land. And the very last part of Genesis closes with Joseph's death. Joseph reminds his family that God has made a promise, that God is going to give them their own land. And so one day, that promise is going to be fulfilled, and Joseph is so sure of it. He says, when that day comes, I want you to carry my bones with you. I love that verse. When you go out of the land... You make sure you carry my bones because this land, Egypt, is not our land. And then the book of Exodus opens, of course, with the continuation of that story, which is where we are this morning. So Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, 
Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose, whose name was Shifra, and the other was Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live." Now, this is a passage I've never preached on before. I've preached on what goes before, and I've preached on what comes after. I've done Sunday night series on the life of Joseph, so I've done a lot of Genesis. I've done a Sunday night series on the life of Moses, and so we began in Exodus chapter 2 with the birth of Moses. But in between the death of Joseph and the birth of Moses, there is a huge a section of history that is just one chapter in our Bibles. We know that when the children of Israel came to Egypt, as I've already said, they came with 70 people. We know that they were going to be there according to chapter 12 and according to a prediction in Genesis, they were going to be there for 430 years. We know that Moses was 80 years old when he began leading the people out. That is when he came back and went to Pharaoh. Moses spent 40 years growing up in Egypt. He spent 40 years in exile in Midian. But now he's come back in, chap in the chapters in Exodus, and he's going to lead them out. So why do I say all that? Well, let's do a little math. I want you to see how much time Exodus chapter 1 en encompasses. So if they're there for 430 years... They were there about 70 years between the time that uh, Joseph's family came down and Joseph died. And then Moses, of course, is 80 when he leads them out. That means Exodus chapter 1 encompasses about 280 years of Israelite history. 280 years. Now, if we add back to that the 80 years of Moses' life before he began the deliverance, 
That means the Israelites were in slavery well over 300 years. We don't know exactly when they, when they transitioned from a welcomed people to slavery, so we can't be certain about how many years, but clearly well over 300 years as slaves. Well, the second thing we need to see, that's all the prelude to the crisis. The second thing we need to see is the problem of the crisis, which is my way of saying, what's wrong with 70 Israelites living in Egypt? Well, that's the problem. They're not 70 anymore. In fact, they are many more than that. When they do leave later in Exodus, we are told that 600,000 men leave. That is men who are 20 and older. That's how it was counted. Which means some scholars believe there were upwards of 2 million people by the time they finally left the land. And now Joseph's name and his fame are long gone. Remembering him for saving them during the famine has vanished. They don't know that anymore. Now you will also remember that God had told Abraham that he would make of his descendants a great nation multiplying them as vastly as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. And that is exactly what God has done, taking this group of 70 people and becoming of them some 2 million people. But not everybody is happy about that, including the current Pharaoh in Egypt, who did not know Joseph and thus had no allegiance to him or his descendants. A few foreigners can be tolerated, maybe even applauded. It brings diversity if we have a few people who are not like us. But if the land or a significant portion of the land becomes filled with foreigners, they become a threat to those who consider themselves to be rightful citizens. This has played out countless times throughout history in many different countries, including our own. Natural citizens start to become fearful that they will lose their jobs, their wealth, maybe even their land, perhaps their power. And therefore, they look down at those who are foreigners. I mean, you know that this past week, it was a major issue in the election as to how various pockets of immigrants voted in this particular election. Immigration itself is always an issue, which is why many countries, including our own, have a quota, that is a number of people who are allowed to legally come into the United States on any given year. It's also why, according to our Constitution, the President of the United States must be born in the United States of America because we don't want to run the risk of a foreigner rising to power over us. So in Pharaoh's eyes, there is a major problem one that he is going to have to deal with. And so he starts a publicity campaign to eventually justify his oppression, which is what, again, has happened countless times in many countries throughout history. When a government wants to get rid of a particular class or group of people, they begin telling their citizens about how dangerous these groups are, convincing their citizens that a threat is among them and therefore it must be dealt with. And so in this case, Pharaoh acknowledged that the Israelites had grown in number and in power and therefore they could become a problem for the Egyptians in the future. After all, what if war breaks out? What if a foreign army attacks us? Maybe these Israelites will join with that foreign army and fight against us. Now, at the end of verse uh, 10 there, if you notice that, it says, uh, 
fight against us and escape from the land. That's a, sort of a disputed phrase, that last part, because what is it saying? Is it saying that they are an, an economic advantage? Well, not yet, because they're not slaves yet. That would later be an issue. I mean, after all, Pharaoh didn't want to let them go because they needed them economically. But at this point, they're not slaves. And so a lot of translations say it should really be overwhelmed or overtaken. That is that they will join with the foreign army and overcome in victory the Egyptians, and therefore they are a danger to us. You remember the Philistines thought the same thing. You remember when David and some of his men lived among the Philistines for a while? The, the, the men said to, to David, you're not going out to war with us. You might turn against us. And it's the same idea here. So there is a problem here. And where there is a problem, there needs to be a solution. So what is the solution? Now, keep in mind, at this point, we are talking about the crisis from the eyes of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, not ultimately the crisis that we are going to deal with. Their crisis was that there are too many Israelites. And so the solution to their crisis is population control. Again, something that has been done throughout history. So Pharaoh decides that they are going to reduce their number by making them slaves. So the solution to Egypt's crisis, that is there are too many Israelites, becomes the crisis for the Israelites, that is they become slaves. Well, you say, how does slavery reduce the population? It does so in two ways. One, they work them so hard that their lifespan is shorter. In a slavery situation, health is not a primary factor. People, people are expendable. So they work them to death. Now, you might say that about your own job. You might say they're working me to death, but you're saying that figuratively. We're using it literally here. The second way it reduces the population is by lowering the birth rate. If you're working hard all the time, there is less time and energy on other pursuits, right? And especially if you're not even at home. You notice that it says in the text that they built two store cities. Well, those store cities we know from history are not in the region in which the Israelites live. So they were taking the men away from the home for long periods of time to build these cities, and therefore they were lowering the birth rate in the process. Now, you can also add poverty to the occasion because they're not going to be spending time in their fields as much as they were. Therefore, they're not going to be producing as much food as they were because they're busy making bricks and such. And therefore, poverty is going to come into the equation, and that is going to reduce their lifespan as well. Now, all of this makes sense logically. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying it makes sense logically, and yet it did not work. The Israelites continued to grow in number and to expand geographically. That is, the more numbers they had, the more land they needed. So how is that possible? How did Pharaoh's plan backfire? Well, because God was in control. And God was continuing to fulfill his promise that he had made to Abraham that he was going to make of them a great people. Now, it's easy for us to see that and to say that. It's easy for me to, to say that in the midst of their crisis of slavery, God was in control, orchestrating everything and making them a great people. But I doubt very much that that's the way they looked at it. I mean, can you imagine being in the midst of that kind of environment for as long as they were? 
They had come down to Egypt as guests of the government. And now the government had turned on them and they were no longer free. And no doubt the common thought was not, don't worry, God's got this. But the common thought was rather, where is God? Doesn't he see what we are going through? Doesn't he care enough to act on our behalf? Doesn't he know that we are in the midst of a crisis? Well, that crisis is about to get worse because Pharaoh is not going to give in nor give up. So he goes to stage two of his population control solution. He summons two midwives. No doubt they are the senior midwives over others. Two midwives are not enough for the number of people that Israel has. And so he summons these two women who are midwives and he tells them that they are to kill the male children, evidently by suffocating them at birth. Now, it's interesting that these two women are named. I mean, even Pharaoh's not named in this story. But the two women are, because these two women are heroes. They are instructed to kill the male babies, and yet they do not. Here is an instance in Scripture, and there are several others, where people decide that the law of God is more important than the law of man. And therefore, they override the law of man, and they do God's will instead. And that's exactly what these two ladies do. They were probably given a financial incentive. That is, they were going to be provided for if they did what the Pharaoh said. They clearly had a negative incentive. That is, if they did not do what the Pharaoh said, they know they are going to lose their life. And again, you say, well, why just the male children? Because the publicity campaign has been that they're going to rise up against us if an enemy comes. Who is it that fights in a war? In that time, it was the men. And therefore, they're killing the future men. Here's one of those occasions where these ladies are heroic for what they do. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and so they didn't do it. And so eventually, and no doubt years have passed by now, the Pharaoh calls these two women in to give an account. Why have you not done what I told you to do? And their answer is a bit confusing for us. I mean, was this an outright lie that they told the Pharaoh that God then rewarded? Is it like Rahab who lied about the spies? She too was rewarded. Is this a case where we need to talk about situational ethics? That there are occasions where a lie is better than the truth? Or is there something else going on here? Was there a real cultural difference between how the Hebrews gave birth and how the Egyptians did? Was there an intentional delay on the part of the midwives? That is, don't call us until the baby's been born. That way, we won't have to do this. We don't know the answers to all of that. What we do know is that what they did was approved by God, and he blessed them as a result, and the Israelites continued to increase in number. Nothing can stop God's plan. But here again, he uses means like we talked about last week. He uses the means of the midwives to bring about the fulfillment of his ongoing promise. And they remind us that there is indeed a time to submit to government and a time to resist what the government says for us to do. And it takes wisdom to know the difference. But again, Pharaoh is not done. He now orders all of the Egyptian citizens to get involved. If you see any male Hebrew child, throw them in the Nile. 
I suppose that's an easy way, no evidence to get rid of these babies. Now, we must be careful that we don't just see this as an introduction to the birth of Moses. Now, it is that. It does tell us something about the context in which Moses was born, and you know what, what his mother did. And so is this just an introduction to tell us why Moses was put in the basket and sent down? Oh, friends, let's not, let's not reduce Exodus chapter 1 to that. Because Exodus chapter 1, again, tells us of 300 plus years of crisis, including the death of their children, potentially. Surely there were some that did die. And so these are a people who have years been crying out to God for years, decades, centuries. No, well, not centuries. I went overboard there. Centuries is a thousand, right? I'm confused now. Decades, well, a lot of years, you know. It was a long time. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. And they're crying out to God, and they're anxious, and they're worried, and they're uncertain. And that's where our text ends. But it is, of course, not where our story ends. Because we need to move forward to the deliverance from the crisis. And now I'm talking about the crisis of slavery that the Israelites found themselves in for all these years. And I keep bringing up the years because I, I know it's so easy to read Genesis, the last chapter, Exodus, the first chapter, Exodus, the second chapter. We, we can go so quickly through those that we don't realize that it is hundreds of years of slavery. So to say that Exodus chapter 1 is the cliff notes of their crisis is an understatement. All of the people in Moses' time knew nothing but slavery. They were born into it. They lived all their lives in it. Their ancestors had as well. That is all they knew. The slavery that our country is known for lasted some 246 years. That's the best guess we can come up with because we really don't know exactly when it started. But most historians date it to the year 1619 and end it with the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865. Now, for you historians, you know that the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect on January 1st of 1863, two years earlier. But there were many who did not hear about that and remained slaved for several years longer. So Israel's slavery lasted at least 100 years beyond what, what our own country experienced. And I want you to know the years because it helps put our own, our own situation in perspective. How are we going to endure four years with this president? And by the way, I wrote that on Thursday when we didn't know who this president is. And some of you are saying we still don't. So I'm not making a political statement. I'm simply saying that regardless of who won the election, there was going to be about half of the country saying, how can I live the next four years with this guy in the White House? Or can you believe that we've been in this pandemic for nine months? I mean, we thought it was going to be a two-week shutdown, maybe a month, and then we'd be back to normal. I confess that I thought the summer heat was going to eradicate it, and we were wrong. Nine months, and there is no end in sight. How can we get through this? Well, can you hear the Israelites laughing at us? Nine months? Four years? I mean, come back to me when you've been in a pandemic for hundreds of years, when that's all you know. 
because that's all these people knew. And I'm not belittling our own suffering. I'm simply trying to give us a wider lens. God did, of course, deliver them. I think you know the story. Moses and Aaron are used by God to go to Pharaoh, and after a series of plagues, Pharaoh has finally had enough, as had the people of Egypt, and they are allowed to leave. And in fact, the story tells us that they plundered the Egyptians, which God had also predicted. They asked them for gifts, and the Egyptians readily gave them to them because they were ready to get rid of them so badly. And so after all of these years, then they spent four decades in the wilderness due to their own sin and rebellion. They did not get to go into the land that God had promised. Only two of the adults who had left got to go into the promised land. Even Moses didn't get to go in and enjoy the land. And this was such a foundational event in their history that the Passover was established as an annual festival to commemorate the Exodus. Now you also might remember that Pharaoh changed his mind and he sent the army chasing after them, wanted them back. And I find it interesting that God drowned the army in the Red Sea. You say, well, why do you find that interesting? Because remember, it was Pharaoh who said, throw the babies in the Nile. And now God, in an act of justice, is drowning his men, even as he had ordered that the babies would be drowned. Now, obviously, this is a hurried description of a significant and long-awaited for deliverance. And again, each week when we look at these, we are going to look at the deliverance from the crisis to remind us that God is a God who delivers. So that hopefully we will be encouraged that he will deliver us from our current political, social, and health crisis along with whatever personal crises you might be in the middle of. But it is all in his time and all according to his plan. In this case, again, generation after generation never knew the fulfillment of the promise. So I want to go back now to the lessons we can learn from the crisis. I want you to see the deliverance, but I want to end by looking at the lessons we can learn from the crisis. Because again, one of our main reasons for doing this is to try to learn lessons for ourselves, even in the midst of the crises that we are enduring. And so the first thing I want you to see and be reminded of is that hard times do not erase the promises of God. Way back in Genesis chapter 15, God had told Abram, not only am I going to make a great nation of you, but the people are going to be in a foreign land under slavery for some 400 years. And God had promised to judge the nation that they had been enslaved to and to bring his people out with great possessions. And all of this did, in fact, occur. So hard times do not negate the promises of God. But you can well imagine during the midst of those years, there was considerable doubt and times of wavering faith. Perhaps someone would remind the people in the midst of all those years, someone would say, don't worry. God has promised, and then they would be laughed at and ridiculed, scoffed at. That's never going to happen. We've been down here for 300 years, and nothing's happened. And yet the promise of God did come about, including their deliverance. Now, we have to be careful when it comes to the promises of God, because there are countless examples of believers taking a promise that was never given to them. That is, sometimes there are specific promises in the Word of God that are for Israel. And that cannot just be unilaterally, unilaterally taken over to us. 
There are promises in the word of God that are for a specific person. And yet there are many general promises of God that are for all believers of all times. Those are the promises that we can cling to. And those are the promises that we know God will answer. Though again, it may not be in our time frame. So there are plenty of pitfalls when it comes to taking the promises of God's word and clinging to them. But there are many promises here that we need to do just that. Promises like God will never leave us. He's promised to always be with us, and that includes hard times. The promise of God sustaining and preserving us doesn't go away in the midst of, of a crisis. The promise that nothing can separate you from the love of God does not change just because you are enduring difficulties. It goes well beyond your difficulties. And these are just a, a few examples of countless promises in God's word that are for all believers of all time. And therefore, we can cling to them and we can trust that they will be answered. The second thing I want to remind you of is that harsh treatment does not escape God's notice. Whether that harsh treatment is at the hands of your critics or your enemies, or whether that harsh treatment is the result of circumstances, God does see. Again, isn't this one of the first things we doubt in the midst of a crisis? Where is God? Why hasn't he answered? Doesn't he see what I'm going through? And the answer is yes. He does see. So our complaining to others or crying out to God is known to him because he knows what we are going through. So if you still have your Bible open, why don't you turn one page to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23. Exodus 2 and verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Check out that terminology again. God heard their cries for help. God remembered his covenant. That doesn't mean he had forgotten. That, that just means he's, he's about to fulfill it. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Look at chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, if you want to see it repeated. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Does God see what is going on in America? Does God know what is happening in your life, in your crisis? Is God aware that there are still people in this world today who are in literal slavery, trafficked around the world for evil intent? And yes, the answer is God sees and God knows and God hears the cries of his people. And as we saw last week in the Psalms, God is a God of justice and perfect justice at that. Now, I have no prophecy for you this morning. 
I have no prediction as to when these crises that we are enduring are going to come to an end and God is going to deliver us, but I do know that God is a God who delivers his people. We also heard David say that in the Psalms. And as believers, we've experienced it in our own lives. After all, hasn't he already delivered you from your greatest bondage and from your greatest enemy? The enemy of sin and the judgment that was to come has been defeated and we've been set free through Christ. And since God has done that, that has met our greatest need, we can trust him to provide everything else we need. He says that very thing, he who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons we can learn from history, specifically the history of your people. They cried out to you in the midst of their crisis, and you heard, and you saw, and you delivered. You know our sufferings. Lord, there are people here and people watching who are going through all kinds of crises, not just the ones I've mentioned this morning, but others that the rest of us know nothing about. They are suffering and they are crying out to you. And I pray that you would remind them this morning that you are a God whose promises will be fulfilled. Hard times do not change that. And you are a God who sees our suffering. No circumstances can override that. Lord, may we cling to the promises of your word in the midst of our crisis and wait patiently and expectantly for that time when you deliver. And we'll be sure to praise you when that day comes is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.